0: Sit down. Sit. All right, sit, sit down, sit down. That's too much. Thank you very much, but um, I, I need to pray. <laughs> Father, I ask your blessing on this church. I thank you for the opportunity. It's been to serve these families, these students, this body of Christ. It's a special place. And I thank you that that my family and I get to stay as members because that's not always possible. And that's a real treasure to us. Uh, So, Father, I pray that you would bless this church. Father, that you would bless these students Uh, That you would bless Joe in his ministry, leading our student ministry from here. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, this is about Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would be first and foremost in our minds and on our tongues this morning. And so, would the name of Jesus be lifted up and honored this morning. We pray this in Christ. Amen. So, when I first interviewed uh, for my my first youth pastor position back in 2005, which for some of you seems like yesterday, and for others of you, you're like, I wasn't even born then, right? But back in 2005, when I was interviewing for my first youth pastor position, I, I met with that church's search committee, and they said, well, how long do you expect to be a youth pastor? And I said, I don't know, I really, I'm kind of a theology geek, uh, and I love preaching, so honestly, probably, you know, maybe five or six years, um, but I I respect and admire youth ministry too much to treat it as a stepping stone, because sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes people want to be a, quote, real pastor, And so they become a youth pastor until they can get the job they want. I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, But I expect to probably only be a youth pastor for a couple of years. Um, But I will fully be here. And 14 years later, I was still there um, until the Lord led me here with you four years ago. And so uh, in these 18 years, uh, there's a a group of fellow youth pastors who I started out with. And um, we've all talked and a number of us have kept in touch, and they all agreed, you're the last one we expected to still be in youth ministry in 2023. In uh, we all thought that you would be the first one to jump ship. And, um, and this sermon captures why the Lord has not let me go from youth ministry, and why ministry to our teenagers uh, means so much to me. And so uh, we're going to read through uh, a couple of passages uh, in, uh, in Joshua and in Judges and in Deuteronomy. And um, I'm going to share some thoughts with you this morning. So um, the, the passages are going to be up on the screen because we're reading through a few different uh, places this morning. And so uh, these emphasize the importance of youth and children's ministry in the life of the church. So if you're here then that includes you, uh, even if you don't have children or if your children are old uh, or if you're still a child or teenager yourself. Uh, If you're here, these passages include you and apply to you. And so I'm going to read for us from Judges 2 and Deuteronomy 6 uh, as our core passages. But in order to understand what's happening in Judges 2, we need to flip back just a few pages in our Bible to read the end of Joshua. Um, so, in Joshua 24, um, it says this. It's going to be on the screen for you to follow along. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, which is a fun name to say. Uh, Joshua traveled, gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then he continues for the next 11 verses to recount and recite Israel's history from Abraham through that day. Just highlighting all the ways that God has promised and kept his promise. And promised and kept his promise. And Israel did not keep their promise and God rescued. And then God made promises and Israel didn't keep their, right? And this cycle continues. And this is what Joshua unfolds for the people. And then he continues saying, now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the, beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. At this stage in Israel's history, they're at a crossroads. There's been a transition in leadership because Moses is gone and Joshua is here. Will God be with Israel under Joshua's leadership the same way he was with Moses? And will Israel treat Joshua's leadership, uh, trust Joshua's leadership or will they scatter and become just like every other wandering people around them now that they have received the promised land? We often read and we often read and have this famous quote in our kitchens and in, our, in the hallways, in our homes, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But remember, the Lord with capital letters, all L-O-R-D in all capitals, is the English way to write the proper name of God, Yahweh. And the Lord with capital L and a lowercase O-R-D is the way to write the name Elohim. Now, Yahweh was God's covenantal name in relationship, an intimate, personal relationship with the people of Israel. And Elohim was God's relationship with all people, with all creation, right? And so there's this personal intimacy between the Lord, Yahweh, and Israel, and so, They're saying, as for me and my house, what God will we serve? Will we serve the Baals or will we serve Marduk or will we serve these other local gods or will we serve Yahweh who has revealed himself and made himself known to Israel and through Moses? Is that the Lord we will serve? And they say, we will. We will do it. This is great. Good news. It's exactly what you'd hope they'd respond. But here's what we read. If you flip from Joshua 24, just flip one, maybe two pages in your Bible, right? That's the last chapter of Joshua. And we're going to read in Judges chapter 2, very next book of the Bible, right? It's like a to be continued of the story. Here's what happens next. Here's the rest of the story. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, at 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And so it prompts this question, was Joshua's generation successful? Right, were they, and, and so it's like, well, yes, in one sense, like they they entered the land, they received the promised land, the twelve tribes of Israel received their promised inheritance. So, in that sense, yeah, they they were successful. But in the bigger picture, right? No, they were not faithful because God's promise. Over and over and over, warns about judgment and exile that would happen if Israel forsakes the Lord and worship the Baals and other gods instead. And that's exactly what happened to begin. And as we continue reading in the book of Judges, what is the legacy of Joshua's generation? Right? We read over and over in the book of Judges in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did. What was right in their own eyes. They lived their own truth. They were their own gods. And so, what does it mean that there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel? This does not mean that they were like, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I've never heard that name before. Oh, there's something about crossing in the Red Sea? I've never heard that story. They knew those stories. They knew the name of the Lord. But they did not know God. Right? They knew about God. They knew about the Lord. But they didn't know the Lord. And they didn't know his faithfulness. They knew about the Lord the way that we know about the pilgrims right? Like, I don't know how much of a daily impact the pilgrims have on your, like, normal daily life, right? It happened just down the road. We know the stories, and then we move on. And I think that's kind of what Israel's history was like for this generation. This is the third generation of Israel in the promised land, right? You have Moses And his generation, and they didn't trust the Lord when the Lord told them to go in to the promised land. They said, The people are like giants, and we are like grasshoppers, and they're gonna stomp us. And so the Lord said, Okay, if you're so afraid, then your generation won't go in, but your children's generation will. So then Joshua's generation went in, inhabited the land, and then after them arose a generation. It doesn't take long. So, what happened? Like, how does, literally, like, how does that happen? And that's a question that many of us, as we look around in our own culture today, we look at and we say, what happened? How did we get here? Like, what, what is happening in our day and in our age? How did we get here? And for that, we need to look before Joshua back to Moses and to hear what he said to Israel in his closing years. So we're going to flip to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, remembering Deuteronomy means second law, right? So it's a covenant renewal. So everything in Deuteronomy is a renewal of God's covenant with Israel. It's like a, a, a wedding vows renewal. Um, and so in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, this is what we read Moses reminding the people of Israel as part of his closing message to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so here's what we're gonna do in the message, right? So uh, first I wanna walk you through Deuteronomy 6. What is happening here? Uh, what is he actually saying? And then I wanna circle back and walk through uh, and pull out three uh, principles that we can draw out from Deuteronomy 6 and apply that for us to be found faithful in passing our faith from generation to generation. So first, right, verses 4 and 5 uh, anchor us in Israel's identity. Uh, Let's remember, again, Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal that Moses led for the people of Israel before his death. And he did this because he knew that Israel was gonna be tempted to forsake the first and second commandments. This is Deuteronomy chapter six. Do you know what's in Deuteronomy chapter five? The 10 commandments. So God had just given the 10 commandments, right? Moses and Israel renewed their vows to the 10 commandments, and then immediately after, we read this. Because Moses knew that the people would be tempted to forsake the Lord and to become like every other nation around them, like every other people around them. For us today, we might think that it's strange that the first two commandments have to do with polytheism, and idolatry, and think, I got those ones down, they didn't. Like, that was very, a very present temptation, and it made them strange and unusual. Deuteronomy 4 and 5 is the first verse that Jewish children would memorize back then and still today. It's called the Shema. Shema. Because the first word in it is the word shema, which means hear or listen. Hear, O Israel. Listen up, Israel. Hey, this is a really important message. Listen to what I'm about to say. That's shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. This is who you are as Israel. In distinction from all the other people around you, this is who you are, Israel. Everyone was gathered together, right, here, O Israel. Israel not just, oh, leaders, or oh, parents, or oh, adults. Here, oh, Israel. The kids weren't in the nursery or at home. Everyone was there, together. This is the pattern, the biblical pattern that we see everywhere in scripture. There is no biblical precedent for separating the generations in worship I don't think that means that it's wrong for us to have a nursery or junior church, but it certainly means that by the time our kids are in middle school, they are accustomed to being part of Israel, right? Being part of the people of God. And so this is Israel's identity. This is our identity. We are the church. Generations. Together, one people, together in unity. The Psalms were the songbook of the temple, and many of them were specifically written to instruct the next generation about God's faithfulness to Israel. We read one of them. This morning already in Psalm 78. Whenever we read about covenant renewals or about important declarations, the next generation was present and included, not just their parents. When Jesus' disciples tried to shoo the children away from receiving a blessing, what did Jesus do? He rebuked the disciples and said, let the children come to me. And he blessed the children. When the apostles wrote letters to the churches, they intended those letters to be read aloud and often included sections for children because they were part of the church as well. We even read about poor young Tychicus who fell asleep during one of Paul's long-winded and boring sermons, and he fell asleep in the window and fell out the window and died and Paul performed a miracle and resurrected, right? The, the children and youth are part of the church. They belong in the church. And so the point here is, hear, O Israel, the following message that Moses gives to parents about family discipleship, is given to parents in the context of the body, in the context of the gathered assembly of God's people. It is not a message that's specifically for parents in isolation. Parenting in isolation doesn't really work so well. I think most of us know that in theory, right? Discipling your kids in isolation doesn't really work so great either. Right? Like Kevin said uh, just the other week, it takes a church to make a Christian. Right? It takes a church to raise a child. We need to be committed to the next generation, to children, to teenagers, to youth as a body, not just as a children's ministry team and a youth ministry team. There, we have a children's ministry. We have a youth ministry. Our job is done. Now, it takes a church. Moving on. Verses six through nine emphasize Israel's heritage, right? Their children. I'll read it again. He says, "These words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them, you shall teach them to your children. you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first thing to recognize here is that the commandments of God need to be on the heart of us parents and adults first before we can impress them onto the hearts of our children. Now, the word impress here isn't, wow, that's so impressive, right? Like, let's make Jesus cool, right? It has to do with carving, right? Like, an embossing. Uh, It's an artisan phrase, right? You are going to carve, you're going to impress, you're going to emboss the commandments of the Lord onto the hearts of your children. Now, sometimes I've heard, Uh, people teach this passage and give a really strong push for family devotions and family worship time together. And if you do that, that's a good thing. But I do want to be clear that the Bible never gives a formula that says, do these things and your kids will grow up faithful. If you do not do these things, then you've blown it and your kids are going to be utter pagans. Right? I know many faithful, wonderful Christian parents who I have learned from uh, severely, right? That I've learned from. uh, And some of their kids have walked away from the faith. And they were faithful. And I know many other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who when you talk to them about their home life, you realize how anti-gospel and sometimes even abusive that household was. And yet here they are. So, if you are hearing this message and your kids have walked away from the Lord and you're thinking, I've blown it, I've blown it, I've messed up, I want to say grace to you. Salvation is the work of God. And we serve a God who calls prodigals home. Amen. And so, be gentle with yourself and pray for your kids and be faithful in calling them with the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit to do his work, okay? But for us who still have kids at home, we want to be diligent, right? We want to be faithful. So what does that mean and what does that look like? I think the first thing it means is that my faith as a dad needs to be part of my whole life and integrated into our family rhythm. It's not just something that I do on Sunday or as youth pastor dad, something that I talk about at youth group and then I contradict throughout the week. Verse seven says that we need to teach God's commands to our children. Do I, do you teach and explicitly talk about the Word of God at home? Or do we just keep it cash? Right? I'm going to make it casual. I don't want to be legalistic and heavy-handed like my parents were. I'm going to be cool about it. Like, we need to teach and talk about the Word of God, who He is, what God says to our kids. That should be just a normal, not a lecture, not here's you know, dad or mom's weekly sermon to the children, but we need to teach and talk about these things at home as a normal part of our conversations because we're Christians. Or do we just kind of view the children's ministry or the youth ministry like, I broke them, you fix them, right? I mean, I've heard people say that jokingly, usually jokingly, But there is an element of truth to that sometimes that people can feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, but you do, so (laughs) here they are, right? Like, I don't know how to teach my kid how to throw a curveball, so I'm going to hire a baseball coach to teach my kid how to throw a curveball. I don't know how to talk about the Bible with my kids, so I'm glad we have a youth pastor and he can do it, right? Like, not the same thing that we are called as parents to talk about the word of God, even if we're talking imperfectly, even if we're stumbling through it, to let the word of God shape us as men and women so that his word and his commandments are impressed on our hearts and then we care for our kids as an overflow of that. The other thing it says, it says teach and talk. Right? So there's a formality of like making an intentional effort to talk about these things. And then there's just kind of talking about it. It's just like normal Christian family stuff. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 6 is a reminder of what it means to be Jewish. And for us, is what it means to just be Christian families. If talking about Jesus feels like you're shoving Jesus down your kid's throat, then maybe you're being too heavy-handed about it, and just talk about Jesus as an overflow of your own joy. And trust the spirit to do his work. So Deuteronomy 6 for today. There's three things I want to highlight. Uh, first is here, O Israel, talking about the church. Right, one of my major concerns uh, for churches and for parents um, and for teenagers today, uh, as I talk with more churches, uh, both locally and uh, in other countries, One of my real concerns is that we don't take the church very seriously. We treat the church like it's about what I can get from the church. It's frighteningly common for small groups and friendship groups of Christians to treat their Bible study like it's their church substitute. I can do this in my small group or I can get this from my community group so I don't really need the church. My church is my community group. I want to say, that's just not biblical. We need the body of Christ. We need each other. So yes, the church is bigger than SSBC, but the local church is God's provision for you and me and for our children to come under godly leadership in order to worship, to receive Rebuke and correction if and when I need a hard word said to me by godly people who I recognize as my spiritual authorities. That's not church abuse. That's godly leadership who is shepherding my soul, knowing that they will give account for me before the Lord. And so we need the church The church is a God's provision for you, for me. And so we worship together. We receive the ordinances together as we work together to fulfill the great commission in our community and around the world. That is the mission of the church. The church is a delight and a joy and a blessing to me. Why would I not prioritize that for my children? When kids go to youth group but not the church, they're missing out on the body of Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised when they stop going to church as adults when they hardly went to church as teenagers because they went to youth group instead. Teenagers need the church. When kids are part of worship, they watch other people worship, right? Like, that's just what we do. We count the chandeliers. We figure out if that light was going to fall, who would it land on? <laughs> uh, right? Like, we do these things, and you, you can't just look around, and you watch people. You're like, oh, yeah, that person's always really expressive, and uh, I wonder what's going on. Like, that's okay. And here's why. Because... As kids, as teenagers, as adults, we have the opportunity to see what joyful worship looks like from our fellow church members whose lives are different from our own. So I get to see men and women who are from different countries, from different economic backgrounds, from a totally different life for me, worshiping together together. I get to see widows and widowers have a hope that endures grief with joy. I get to see the wholeness that that satisfies men and women who were never married or who never had children, even though the world would say that is a tragedy. I get to see people who are suffering from various sicknesses sicknesses, and trials, and yet they come to church for worship because they are living for a heavenly treasure, not an earthly one. And if our kids aren't here, they don't get to see that. Another reason our kids and us need the church is for the music. And so I want you to raise your hand if you've ever struggled or been in a dark place, and then a song that you sang as a child in church, is what God used to lift you out of the darkness. Right? Like, the music is formative. The music shapes us. And I can think of many songs I sung as a kid that I was like, that song is so boring. And yet, when I felt like my life was in shambles, guess what the Lord used to lift me up? those boring songs that I complained about singing as a kid. And Spotify can't provide that. It's not the same. When our kids and teens are here singing and participating in worship, even if it's not their favorite song, they're missing out on the ways that corporate worship forms us for years to come and it's a reminder for them that they belong not just to attend church but as participants in the church, as contributors to the church, not just participants or contributors at youth group or in kids club. When we talk about the church as a church family, what do we really mean by that? Right? When we dedicate our kids, before the Lord for like infant dedications? Is it just a chance to like look at the cute baby or to go through the motions because that's just like what you do? Or is it a chance for us to come together as a church body and as a family to genuinely commit ourselves to the body of Christ, to ask for their help and to put ourselves in a position to receive the church's help And do we as a church body take seriously the blessing and the honor and the trust as the family of God to co evangelize those children and to co disciple those children in true partnership with those parents? Do we take that commitment seriously and earnestly? As a church family, we cannot personally know and love and serve and support one another if we treat our time together as a matter of convenience. And I wanna take a moment to thank our children's ministry and youth ministry volunteers for your ministry. I wanna take a second to thank my youth leaders. Listen to all these names. Right? You, youth leaders, have blessed and enriched me. You have served my kids and our kids faithfully. Right? Listen to these names. It's a lot of them, and that's the point. Deb, Becca, Ginny, Beth, Tara, Mary, Amy, Karen, Megan, Janet, Lydia, Deanna, Adrian, both Joes, Calvin, Jeff, Dan, Column, Bill, Scott, Jason, both Josh's, Caleb, and Noah. And our Sunday school teachers, Melissa and Andy, Mike and Laura, Gates and Sarah, and Dave and Kevin, right? There are 35 names here. That's a lot of people who are doing. The work that we're talking about here, right? That's something to celebrate. So give them a round of applause and thanks. All right, I need to move on. Uh, The second thing, right? These words shall be on your heart. It highlights the gospel. It highlights the role of the gospel. It's important to remember in the ancient Near East, the heart was the thing that made you you. Uh, That's why it was the only organ that when uh, they were preparing a body for mummification, right, when they were making mummies, um, the heart was the only organ they did not remove because that's what made that person that person. And so when when he says, write these words on your heart, he's not just saying like, oh, on your nice, like, warm, fuzzy emotions. He's saying like, is the essence of who you are. That the, the gospel, the, the commandments of the Lord are engraven on the essence of what makes you, you. Is the gospel engraven on our hearts as parents and as children, as church members? Are we gospel people? When someone looks at our calendar, bank statements, YouTube history, do they see a portrait of someone who is shaped by the gospel, because we can't give what we don't have. Moses reminded Israel who they are, and he called them to teach God's commandments to their children. But if the parents and community leaders are only following the commandments because they want to get into the promised land, then their teaching and their engraving will be half-hearted. The good news of the gospel is that we receive a new heart, that God removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh because keeping the commandments has never saved anyone. The gospel always did. And so we are gospel people. God has given us a new heart. He writes his commandments on our heart and we can't keep that to ourselves. And so therefore, when we that we talk about the Lord when we're home and when we're driving in the car, when we're tucking them in at bed, and when we're sitting at the dinner table. The message of the gospel is the message of new life for sinners. It means our sin has been forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ, that our guilt and shame has been wiped away because he rose victoriously from the grave, and we are given an eternal hope Because Jesus ascended into glory and he will return to finish everything that he began. And our hope will become sight. That's good news. That's something that we can build our lives around. It's something that we want to teach our children diligently. But what's that look like Right, we need to teach our children diligently. This is the gospel at home. When we talk about the church, with family language, right? Uh, I, I, I once heard a speaker explain that parents tend to believe in holiness or in grace, and uh, by holiness, talked about like a high expectation for godly behavior, right? Like high standards. But sometimes grace was really hard to come by, right, because there's so many expectations. Uh, with, with others, families are really high on grace, right? There's lots of patience and receiving and accepting kids kind of as they are and on their terms, lots of forgiveness, uh, but there's not really high expectation um, and, or correction uh, or saying this is what God says, Right, so, uh, and the the speaker illustrated the holiness and grace tension by talking about uh, belaying, um, about belaying um, up a mountain, up up a mountainside. So, uh, if, everything's okay, it's getting help. Uh, So if there is someone who's climbing up a mountainside, right, imagine that you as a parent are at the top of the mountain face and you're belaying your children up who are climbing. The holiness parents have a lot of tension on the rope, so much so that they're practically dragging their kids up because you don't want them to fall, right? You want them to get to the destination, without falling, so you're basically like, there's lots of tension on the rope. But what happens then is like, you're kind of getting, like as the climber, you're kind of getting dragged and it's, it's actually more dangerous for you, so they cut the rope. And now they're free climbing without your help at all. And parents who are on the grace side, they want their kids to be able to choose their path, right? Have some freedom, I'm here, buddy. I'm gonna catch you if you fall. You choose your path. But the kid can't feel any tension on the rope. They can't feel any direction about what's the best way to get there. And so they're like frozen by indecision. And they don't know if I fall, is there enough tension on this line to catch me? And so we don't wanna drag our kids up the rock face on their journey to Christ, right? We also don't want to leave so much slack on the rope that they don't know what the direction is to climb or will anyone actually catch me if I fall. We want to be gospel people. We need to call our kids to holiness and we need to practice forgiveness and grace when they sin and model repentance before them because we're still sinners too. That's the message of the gospel. And so we don't want to lose the next generation like Joshua's generation did, right? We want to let Judges 2.10 be a sober warning for us. Teenagers aren't the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. When Israel gathered... The children were there as members and participants of Israel, not as potential Israelites, but as members and participants of Israel. That's what infant dedication means. It means that the children we dedicate and bring before the Lord are the children of South Shore Baptist Church. They are among us. We have faithful and committed members who are serving in our children's ministry and in our youth ministry. I'm incredibly thankful for and encouraged by each of you. You parents have been a blessing to serve and to partner with. I don't think we're failing. But I will admit that I wish we saw more kids and teenagers worshiping with us here in this room on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful and encouraged by those of you who have been faithful prayer partners for our kids, for you senior saints who have been diligent in praying for our students by name. You have been a blessing and a joy to serve as a church, and now I trust that will only continue for Joe under his ministry and leadership. Pray for Joe, for his team, I'm praying for SSBC uh, that you and we would continue to grow as a church who believes that passing the faith from generation to generation takes a whole church, not just a team of volunteers in the kids and student ministry. And so as I close in prayer, I want to read a prayer for us from one of my favorite prayer books. It's a prayer entitled, A prayer about children and childlikeness. This is from Scotty Smith's book, Everyday Prayers. It's really good. Highly recommend it. Everyday Prayers by Scotty Smith. So let's pray. Most welcoming Lord Jesus, there's no more important or necessary gifts that we can give our children than to keep on bringing them to you. Whether they're babies, teenagers, or adults themselves, it makes no difference. At every stage of life, our kids need you, Jesus. For our children who have yet to find life in you, have mercy on them and bring them to a saving knowledge of yourself, Jesus. They don't just need to grow up. They don't need religion. They don't need moral reform. They need the gospel of your grace. Show them how much they need you and show them how much you love them. Keep them restless until they rest in your complete forgiveness and perfect righteousness. More than we want Harvard for our children, we want heaven. Jesus, some of us grieve the ways we've made the gospel less than beautiful and believable to our children. Forgive us, and show yourself to be the God who's limited by nothing, including parental self-righteousness. Transcend the ways we've blown it, but also grant us humility and grace to repent, first before you and then to them. Free us to give our children the gift of repentance. For our children who know you, But currently seem to have waning or zero interest in you. Or even ambivalence or antipathy towards you. Hear our cry. Restore them to the joy of your salvation. Our confidence is in our Father's promise to bring to completion the good work he's begun in each of us. But Jesus, we cannot afford to be either presumptuous or passive. Work powerfully. Work presently, work persistently, Jesus. We ask for your name's sake. Give us patience with their doubts. Give us forbearance in their struggles. Give us grace to welcome prodigals home. Lastly, Jesus, we ask you to restore us, to restore me to the childlikeness of our early days of knowing you. Free, from, free us from childishness indeed, but renew our hearts in childlike joy, playfulness, gratefulness, and simplicity. Our bodies and minds are getting older, but cause our hearts to dance again in the utter and matchless delights of being loved by you. I pray this in your glorious name. Amen.